Hello everyone, and welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today, we're going to go back in time an entire millennium to meet one of the most influential surgeons of all time. Now despite this, I would imagine most casual students of the history of medicine don't know about him. Our subject is Dr. Al Zarawe. Let's find out how his life and works influenced surgery for hundreds of years in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Any study of the history of surgery and medicine in general should take into consideration the influence and achievements by the Islamic world. Before we talk about specific physicians, let's do a quick historical overview to set the scene. The Islamic Golden Age is considered to have lasted from the 8th to the 13th century, a time when science flourished, economic development boomed, and cultural works blossomed. This Arabic Muslim empire in its heyday extended beyond the Arabian Peninsula to include parts of India, Central Asia, North Africa, and Southern Europe. This is why the terms Arabic, referring to both the region of the Arabian Peninsula and the unifying language of the empire, and Muslim, referring to the predominant religion in the region, are used interchangeably in this podcast. The practice of medicine in this golden age expanded, with many hospitals being built with different departments, including branches of internal medicine, orthopedics, and surgery. There were lecture theaters, libraries, accountants, administrative staff, and even sanitary inspectors to regulate cleanliness. There was a board of directors, which included a non-medical person, the head of pharmacy, and the chief physician. Medical students would work in the hospitals providing patient care under a supervising physician. Medical diplomas were obtained by a licensing exam. There are many other aspects of institutionalized medicine that would seem very familiar to us today. Now, some have argued that the physicians of the Islamic Empire were merely transmitters of knowledge, borrowing from the ancient Greeks and Romans and the Ayurvedic medicine of India, and that their greatest contribution was to protect, organize, and propagate medical knowledge during the Dark Age of Europe. As one source put it, these Muslim scientists were, quote, simple purveyors of Greek science to the scholars of the Renaissance. However, there is a lot of literature demonstrating that these physicians were in fact innovators and contributed greatly to the evolution of medical knowledge. Let's meet some of them. Muhammad ibn Zakariya al-Razi, known in Europe as Razis, was born in the town of Ray, Persia, which is in modern-day Iran. He worked there and in Baghdad and was a leading medical scholar in the Islamic world. He wrote prolifically, and his text became part of the medical curriculum in Western universities, such as On Surgery and A General Book on Therapy. He had a number of original ideas, such as describing and identifying measles and smallpox as distinct diseases. Razes was also an innovator in ophthalmology and wrote the first book on pediatrics. Ali ibn al-Abbas al-Majuzi, Hali Abbas in Europe, was born in southwest Persia. He wrote The Complete Book of the Medical Art, completed circa 980 CE. Also called the Royal Book, it was found throughout Europe in medieval times and is considered one of the most well-organized and accessible texts of the great Arabic systems of medicine. Ibn Sina, European name Avicenna, was born in present-day Uzbekistan, but ended up in Ray, Persia, the home of Razis. He wrote The Book of Healing and The Canon of Medicine, the latter becoming a standard medical encyclopedia in many medieval universities, which was printed in Europe at least 60 times between 1516 and 1574 and remained in use as late as 1650. All of these physicians were from what was known as the Eastern Caliphate, a caliphate being a region governed by a head of state known as a caliph. But the one we're most interested in came from the western part of the Islamic Empire and is probably the most famous of the Golden Age physicians. Abu al-Qasim, Caliph ibn al-Abbas al-Zarawi, 
popularly known as Alzarawi, or by his Latinized name, Abulcacus or Albucacus, depending on the source, was born in El Zara in the region of Al-Andalus, a part of Muslim Spain. The town was a suburb of Cordoba. He lived from 936 CE to 1013 CE, living to about 76 or 77 years of age during the height of Arabic domination in Spain. So let's talk a little bit about how the presence of the Islamic Empire in Spain came to be. In 711 CE, Arab Muslims led by General Tariq ibn Ziyad invaded southern Spain and created a center of civilization called Al-Andalus. They made the city of Cordoba in southern Spain the capital, which became a hub of power in the Iberian Peninsula that was under Muslim rule. The city became an economic and cultural center and was known as the Ornament of the World. At this time, the population was approximately 250,000, and it had a library containing 600,000 books. The region had six universities and over 70 public libraries, clearly becoming a center for the preservation of knowledge. So it was in this world that al-Zarawi practiced medicine. Considered as the greatest medieval surgeon to have appeared in the Muslim world, he treated everyone, from the Andalusian Caliph al-Hakam III, he was the court physician, to patients who could not afford to pay for his services. In fact, he spent half his working hours treating patients as an unpaid volunteer. But what he is best known for is the Kitab al-Tazrif, or simply the Tazrif, a 30-volume encyclopedia of medical practices, which was 1,500 pages long and contained 200 drawings. Its full name was the Al-Tazrif Liman Ajaz Anil Talif, which means, quote, an aid for those who lack the capacity to read big books, end quote, or, quote, the arrangement of medical knowledge for one who is not capable to compile a book for himself, end quote which is a pretty sassy title for a 30-volume text. The final volume is devoted to surgery and covered the gamut of surgical specialties, including dentistry, ENT, head and neck surgery, general surgery, OBGYN, military medicine, urology, and orthopedics. The volume was divided this way. 1. On cauterization, 56 sections. 2. On surgery, 97 sections. And 3. On orthopedics, 35 sections. The book described surgical procedures and gave detailed illustrations of the necessary surgical instruments, together with his observations and comments based on experience. Let's talk about some general principles it covered and then get into a few examples of surgical procedures. First, cautery. By this, he means using heated metal to burn tissue. Interestingly, that in principle is not far off what we do today. See podcast 7 on the Bovie instrument. Now, using cautery has been around since antiquity, but al-Zarawi was the first to advocate limitations on its use, define modes of application, invented different shapes of cautery tools to be used purposely on different parts of the body, and he made three observations on the use of metals. One, he noted that when iron is heated, it becomes red at first, and with further heating, it becomes white. He advised the use of red-hot iron for cautery as it coagulates the tissue, meaning it stops bleeding, whereas white-hot cuts like a knife. Two, he advocated the use of iron in cautery rather than copper or gold, as the latter cool quickly, and if you heat beyond a certain temperature, they melt. And three, he preferred cautery with metal over caustic drugs, as with the former you can judge the amount of cauterization, and the latter can inadvertently damage neighboring healthy tissues. So next, let's talk about anesthesia. We're still a long way from ether and chloroform, but al-Zarawi invented a sponge that was saturated with medications and then dried. At the time of surgery, the sponge was immersed in a boiled solution and pressed on the patient's lips and nostrils. The drugs would be absorbed by the mucous membrane and cause deep sleep and pain control. This 
Anesthesia by inhalation was known in Europe as Arabian Nights. Common medications then included hashish, which comes from cannabis, opium, a form of morphine, hyacin, from a plant in the nightshade family, also known as scopolamine, good for post-operative nausea and vomiting, and bearded darnel, a type of grass whose seed contains a narcotic. Al-Zarabi used alcohol extracted from wine, not for patients, but rather to keep his surgical instruments clean, despite the concept of antisepsis not coming along for over 800 years. He was the first to use cotton to control bleeding and developed the use of plaster, which was made of gypsum, a soft sulfate mineral, also known as plaster of Paris, for fractures, and the adhesive bandage, or sticking plaster. Many sources credit him as the first to use catgut sutures, although this is debatable. So catgut is an absorbable suture that can be used in the body as it doesn't have to be removed later. If you recall from episode 4 on Lister, catgut is actually made of the intestine of sheep or goat, not cat, and is made in a process similar to that used to make strings from musical instruments. Which leads to a great story, which I only saw in one source but I have to share. Al-Zarawi recognized that animal gut is a dissolvable material after he discovered that a monkey had eaten the strings of his lute. He checked the monkey's uh, ascrita, but didn't find the lute strings. Now, another interesting thing he did was to use giant ants in abdominal suturing. The ant was left to bite the wound edges, then the ant's head was separated from its body, leaving it as a sort of staple. Apparently, there is a record of this dating back to the Neolithic period. An added bonus is that the ants secrete an antiseptic material called formic acid, which acts directly at the suture line. A bonus fact, formic acid comes from Latin formica, meaning ant. And there's another related word, formication, which means the sensation of ants crawling on your skin. Al-Zarawi introduced over 600 instruments in the Tazrif. The illustrations of instruments in the surgical literature was an Islamic innovation, detailing the type, shape, and size of them. He even invented a number of instruments. My favorite is a concealed knife used to open abscesses on the skin without alarming the patient. He describes three sizes of an instrument he called the deceiver, consisting of a blade between two curved plates attached to a handle so that the blade can be exposed or withdrawn at will. It also protected surgeons from accidentally cutting themselves. I'll try to find a picture for Twitter. One surgical concept that he wrote about was in the area of bleeding and blood vessels. Zarawi noted that there are both pulsating and non-pulsating vessels, meaning he had a certain awareness of the difference between arteries and veins. He also noted the following. 1. Arteries retract when they are cut across and if small, stop bleeding. 2. Incomplete cutting of arteries causes much bleeding. 3. Arteries bleed from both ends when cut across. 4. There is the possibility of late hemorrhage if wounds are not kept clean. And 5. Bleeding can be stopped by digital pressure, meaning pressing on it with a finger, by cautery, dry dressings, or cold water. He also described how to ligate or tie off blood vessels, and is credited with being the first to describe how to expose and divide the temporal artery, on the temples, for persistent headache, meaning migraine. And he did this 600 years before the famous French surgeon Ambrose Paré did it to himself. And don't worry, I'll cover Paré in another podcast. Now, interestingly, this procedure is enjoying a revival in the 21st century, led by Dr. Elliot Chevelle, a South African surgeon. Now that leads us into a discussion of some of the surgical procedures that Al-Zarawi wrote about. Interestingly, he was the first to use ink to mark incisions on patients preoperatively, as well as using it to mark the precise place for cauterization. His tonsillectomy procedure was an improvement on technique and instrumentation. The tongue was immobilized by a tongue depressor, a hook held the swollen tonsil, 
and a scissor-like instrument with transverse blades both cut the gland and held it for removal from the throat as a sort of guillotine-type instrument. Zarawi described a surgery for gynecomastia, which is a term coined by Galen, the famous Greek physician of the Roman Empire in the 2nd century CE. The word means female breast and refers to when males develop breast tissue. The surgery had been described before, but Zarawi did not simply copy, but modified the technique and administered medications showing his own approach. One specific thing that does not appear in the Greek or Roman writings was the identification that hemorrhage or bleeding is a common complication and that it can be treated by compression cotton dressings. He made a number of contributions to obstetrics, including describing the use of forceps to help deliver the baby's head, a method for helping to remove any retained placenta in the womb, which we now call Creed's maneuver, and a position to help women deliver a baby, which later became known as the Walker position. He even pioneered the use of a glass mirror to reflect sunlight to inspect the uterine cervix. He also made a number of contributions in urology. The perineal resection of bladder stones, meaning to remove them through an incision made below the scrotum or vulva, has been described since antiquity, but Zarawi introduced a new technique using a fine drill and other instruments. He is considered by some to be the founder of lithotripsy, litho meaning stone, and tripsy from the Greek tripsis meaning rubbing or friction. He also produced a catheter to go in the urethra to enter the bladder and developed a syringe made of silver or ivory with a long narrow cannula and a broader straight cylindrical barrel and copper piston to inject medications into the bladder. In fact, because of this, he is credited with the first use of syringes, although only used for the urinary bladder and not the bloodstream. That would have to wait for the famous architect Christopher Wren in England in the 1600s. Zarawi wrote extensively about fractures and dislocations and used plasters, adding egg yolk and flour for the immobilization of fractures, as well as inventing different types of splints for simple and compound fractures. He described what we now call Coker's method for treating shoulder dislocation, which was described in 1870 by Emil Theodore Coker. See the podcast on Nobel Prize winning surgeons. So as you can see, Al-Zarawi had a huge impact on surgical knowledge. He is considered by some to be the father of surgery, but as we've already seen, many have been given this title. Now in his case, it might have actually been true, at least for the first 500 years or so after him. For five centuries of the European Middle Ages, his text was one of the primary sources for European medical knowledge and had a profound influence on the emerging medical sciences in medieval Europe. It displaced Avicenna's canon as the textbook for medical education in many European universities. Al-Zarawi completed the Tazrif in the year 1000, and it was later translated into Latin in the 12th century by Gerard of Cremona, an Italian translator of Arabic scientific works, and was still being reprinted as late as the 1770s. The final chapter on surgery was the most reproduced part of the Tazrif, with at least 10 Latin editions from 1497 to 1544. The last edition was by John Channing of Oxford, England in 1778. Now, despite this incredible track record of influence, there are some who believe that his works were simply reproductions of others, and one in particular is cited. That is Paul of Agena, or Paulus Agineta, a 7th century Byzantine Greek physician from Alexandria, who may have actually been in Alexandria when it fell to the Arabs in 642 CE. He is best known for writing the medical encyclopedia called, quote, the Medical Compendium in Seven Books, end quote. This work contained the sum of all Western medical knowledge and was unrivaled in its accuracy and completeness. This book was said to have greatly influenced Arabic medicine. Razis drew extensively from it for his own writings, as did al-Zarawi. His work on surgery did borrow heavily from this. Paul's sixth book of his medical encyclopedia was concerned with surgery, 
and translated into Arabic in the 9th century, and widely used by Islamic physicians. So does this detract from al-Zarawi's contributions? Absolutely not. Nothing is created in a vacuum. Everything we do today comes down to us from those who came before us. The Tazrif represented improvements in the usual techniques, refinement, and even creation of surgical instruments, and even provided case histories and advice, proving that it added to and elevated surgical knowledge, not just transmitted it. The illustrations of surgical instruments on its own was an important innovation in the history of surgical literature. I think al-Zarawi said it best himself in a quote from the Tazrif, quote, Whatever I know, I owe solely to my assiduous reading of books of the ancients, to my desire to understand them and to appropriate this science. Then I've added the observation and experience of my whole life, end quote. And that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm really excited about the next episode. We'll talk about the New Zealand plastic surgeon Archibald McIndoe, who worked on injured Royal Air Force pilots during World War II. The patients formed their own social group called the Guinea Pig Club. Lots of good stuff there. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.